Good evening. Would you please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. And while you're turning there, um, let me just say how honored we are to be here with you this summer. Um, you love us and you take care of us so well. As, as Carrie said earlier, we're just really incredibly thankful to be here with you, to be your co-laborers in this work in North Africa. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of, the, of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Father, we come to hear from you. Would you please bless these few minutes that we have together? Help us to see and savor your son, Jesus. As we study your living and active word, would you please apply it to our hearts, apply it to our lives? Would you, by your spirit, discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and cut through, Lord? Speak to us that we might further live by faith in this pilgrimage from this world to the world to come. May you increase and may I decrease. Amen. Where are you from? I get this question a lot. Uh, in my city, people are confused by me. Um, they're confused by my white skin, by my dashing good looks, <laughs> my robust mustache, and my oddball Arabic. When asked, I usually ask in return, well, where do you think I'm from? Uh, nine times out of 10, they say Syria. Uh, apparently, I sometimes resemble uh, that stand-up world leader, Bashar al-Assad, uh, president of Syria. Um, he's not a good guy. <clears throat> but in general, I like the question, where are you from? Uh, it's an easy question for me. I was born and raised in the same city uh, in eastern New Mexico until I left for university. I lived in two houses growing up, both about two miles apart, or within a couple of miles from each other, and I can say with confidence, I am from New Mexico. I am from Clovis, right? It's not a problem for me. But are you aware, however, that um, for some people, this produces anxiety if you ask them where are they from? Some people hate that question because they don't feel like they have a very good answer. Um, have you ever heard of a TCK? Uh, that stands for a third culture kid. Uh, it's now the politically correct way to describe a child who has spent a significant part of their developmental years in a country other than that of their parents. Uh, the first culture, so it's a third culture kid. The first culture is that of their parents. Second is the country in which they reside. And then the third is some combination of the two that they experience, right? Uh, my children would be considered TCKs. 
If you talk to an adult who has a, uh, a background of being a TCK, likely they will not like the question, where are you from? Why? Well, because that question is often asked in the context of, I don't understand this person in front of me. Where, where are you from again? Type thing, right? So imagine my children growing up in Africa, in our home, then coming to the States for university. They'll be interacting with Americans who have thousands of shared cultural um, reference points, which my children may not have. And then my children are going to look like them, they're going to speak like them, they're going to talk like them, um, but will likely act and respond differently than them. So, like, for example, just last week, I'm sitting with somebody, and uh, I, we're talking about some. He's showing me some uh, tool, and I said, that's not a knife, this is a knife. And we both laughed, right? Well, had my kids been in that situation, you know, fast forward 20 years from now, uh, somebody's going to say something like to, that to them, and they're not going to laugh, right? And then they're going to say, where are you from again, right? So tonight, we're going to be exploring this question. Where are you from? On to Hebrews. Hebrews was written to first century Christians about 50 years after uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. It appears that the author of Hebrews knew these people that he was writing to. He's concerned for them. He's concerned that they're going to fall away. The people he's writing to appear to be a group of Jewish background Christians, and they're tempted to leave Christ and return to their former way of life. The author discourages them of this in two main ways throughout his letter. He warns them of the dangers of forsaking Christ, and he raises their eyes to the all-supremacy of Christ. Christ is worthy of all worship. He is God. He is the better high priest. That mediator that you have right now at the temple, he's better than that. He is the all-sufficient sacrifice. You don't have to keep coming and giving sacrifices every year. He's the all-sufficient sacrifice. You know that covenant that Moses instituted? Well, he brings in a better covenant where the law is written on your hearts, right? So he warns them of the dangers of leaving Christ, and then he points them to look at Christ. Well, our text tonight falls near the end of the letter of Hebrews. He's warned them over and over about forsaking Christ. He's pointed to Christ over and over, saying, lift your eyes, look at who he is. Now he wants to tell them how they should respond to what he has just taught them. How should they respond? They should respond in faith. So we're in chapter 11. This is the famous chapter listing many examples of how believers throughout history have responded to God by faith. A great song that we sang, by faith, by faith. The writer, the writer first defines faith in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he goes on to give many examples of people before these first century Christians whom they and we should consider when thinking how to respond in faith to the truths of Scripture. He lists Abel, right? Cain and Abel. Enoch walked with God, no more. Noah who all respond in faith to God's commands. Then in verse 8 of chapter 11, the author brings up Abraham. Now Abraham was called by God to go to a place that he didn't know. Chapter 12, Genesis. Abraham, I'm calling you out. Go to this place. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm sending you to this place, to this land, and it's going to be an everlasting possession to you. He didn't know where he was going when he was sent out, though. 
He did arrive in this land of promise, but when he was there, he lived in tents with his children. You know, he was traveling with Lot, his nephew. And it's interesting that Lot, whenever they got to this land of promise, Abraham goes this way, Lot goes that way, and Lot goes to dwell in cities, but it says that Abraham continued to dwell in tents. We're told that, um, or Abraham seems to hardly treat it like an everlasting permanent possession. He's in the land of promise, but he's living in tents. And by the way, it's also filled with people who are not of his family, right? People who might be in opposition to him filling that place. Abraham was also promised by God that he would be a great nation, and through him every nation on the earth would be blessed. As you know, he became a very old man before God finally granted him and Sarah the ability to conceive. So that's the Abraham section of chapter 11. And now we get to verse 13. The identity of a pilgrim. What is our identity? Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These all died in faith. The these here in this verse is referring to Abraham and to his children, not to Abel and Enoch and Noah. So I'm going to circle back in a minute to the first part of verse 13, but for now let's look at how these Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how did they view themselves? That is, what was their identity? It says in verse 13, they acknowledged that they were strangers, that they were exiles, or in other versions, that they were sojourners, pilgrims on the earth. Exile, someone who is not able to go to their country. Sojourner, someone who is temporarily in one country or in one place en route to another place. So when the Hebrews in the first century, these likely former Jews, hear this, they're thinking through their Bible history. They're thinking, okay, um, when did they acknowledge that they were pilgrims, as it says in verse 13? Well, when he was living in the land promised to him, when he's living in Canaan, um, in Genesis 23, his wife dies at 127 years old. And he goes to the inhabitants of the land, right? He's, he's in the land promised to him by God, and he goes to the inhabitants of the land, and he says, I'm a sojourner among you. I'm a foreigner among you. Could you give me a place to bury my wife? This land was promised to him by God. The God of the universe promised Abraham that this is his land, and yet he keeps this identity, he keeps this identity and he says to people, I'm a sojourner here. Can I have some land? Now, Abraham was kind of a big deal, right? He had people coming to him wanting to make um, treaties with him. He's, he has um, gained a lot of wealth, a lot of power, probably has a lot of servants. People are coming to him, wanting treaties with him because of this wealth and power and because they're recognizing that God is with him. But instead of just taking what is his and what God promised him, the author of Hebrews points us to the fact that Abraham viewed himself as a stranger and as an exile on earth. 
So remember that the author of Hebrews is in the middle of explaining to these first century Christians that they're to live by faith. We're in the faith chapter. And he wants to point out to them that Abraham considered himself a sojourner. But it wasn't just Abraham. So Abraham moves to this land that God has promised to him and to his, the generations after him. Abraham has Isaac. He lives in the promised land. Isaac has Jacob, Abraham's grandson, who spent almost all of his life living in the promised land of, of Canaan. At the end of his life, he goes to Egypt. And he's talking to Pharaoh in Genesis 47. At the end of his life, he says that he has been so sojourning for 130 years, just like his father's. He tells Pharaoh, I'm a sojourner. My father was a sojourner, and the father before him was a sojourner. What gives? Why? Why did these men who had been living in the land promise to them that was to be theirs for eternity consider themselves sojourners? Again, let's think about these first century Hebrews, or these first century Christians to whom this letter was written. When they read the sentence about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob acknowledging that they were pilgrims on earth, maybe their thoughts also turned a little bit later to King David. David was a great king who lived in the promised land after it was conquered, right? So Jacob comes to Egypt, and with all of his sons, they get really big there, right? They become the nation of Israel. They leave Egypt. They go into the wilderness wander around the wilderness for 40 years, then they go into the land promised to them, into Canaan. They take it with Joshua, right? And then later comes David, and he is this great king. And his son, Solomon, builds a temple. So they're living in the land of promise with this great nation. A temple is there for God's presence. And as David is praying at the temple, he says to God, for we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow. David, living in the promised land, considered his life and his forefathers' lives a sojourn, a temporary stay en route to a different place, a pilgrimage. So we're exhorted here in, this, in verse 13 to consider that acknowledging our identity as strangers and exiles on the earth is a proper way to view ourselves if we want to live by faith, avoiding apostasy and treasuring Christ. We are to view ourselves as sojourners. This isn't just an Old Testament idea, though. It's further developed in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter says in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He appeals to how they view themselves to their identity. In light of being a sojourner, since you are just en route right here to some other place, since your life is just a blip in, in light of eternity, don't mess with these just fleshly desires right here. Consider yourselves a sojourner, an exile. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, Peter says. What would it mean in your life to grow in this identity? There are many things to be said about the different ways that we can view ourselves as Christians, right? We talk about identity. 
Um, I can have an identity of child of God. I'm adopted. I want to grow in the, in the identity of I am an adopted child of God. I want to grow in the identity of um, I am um, uh, in union with Christ. I am the bride of Christ. But imagine you grew in this area, this metaphor of how we are to relate to the present world and the world to come. What would change if you believed that your life was just a shadow and that your real life was ahead of you? How would you act differently? If you believed that, that this life is just en route to another place, how would you react to the flirtatious relationship that you have at work, to somebody trying to flirt with you or you trying to flirt with someone else? Like, how would that change things if it's just like, this is, this is temporary, and I, I've got some other place that I'm going, right? Or spending money. We have somewhat of a perspective on that, being um, somewhat sojourners on this earth, it, it affects the way that we spend our money. We don't want to invest a lot of money into where we live right now because who knows how long we're going to be there, right? So avoid thinking um, in this question. Avoid thinking of other people. Avoid thinking of rich people and poor people. Just think about yourself. What would it mean if you grew in your identity of, I am only temporarily here? How would that change how I spend my money? What would I do differently? Well, we're going to continue to consider this. Um, let's go to the next verses, verses 14 and 15. But sorry, we'll start at 13 again. This would be, so we just, we considered the identity of a pilgrim, right? Acknowledging I'm a sojourner, I'm a pilgrim on earth. Now let's consider what comes of that. If, you're, if you identify as a pilgrim, what actions come out of that? Verse 13 again. These all died in faith. Abram, Isaac, Jacob, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So in verse 14, the author says, you know the people who talk this way? The people who say, I'm a pilgrim, I'm a sojourner? Saying that they're strangers and exiles on earth? These people are making it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Why would Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be seeking a homeland? Abraham had moved there. Isaac lived there. Jacob lived there. What other homeland were they seeking? Maybe they were seeking Abram's homeland of Ur, right? You guys remember in Genesis 12, he's called out of the land of Ur. No, verse 15 says that if they had been thinking of their homeland, they could have returned. Nothing was stopping them from returning to Ur. They must have been thinking of a different homeland. We find the answer in the next verse, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They were not seeking Abram's homeland in Ur. They were seeking a homeland in heaven. The author of Hebrews, so let's go back to Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is saying that we are to learn from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're to take on this identity of sojourner, 
that is temporary stare, we take on this identity, and we're to seek our homeland in heaven. The striking thing here is that they were seeking another homeland, a homeland in heaven, and they lived in the land flowing with milk and honey. But they're seeking another heavenly homeland. Do you hear this, Americans? They lived in the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. And yet the author of the book of Hebrews describes these patriarchs he says that they are seeking another homeland. This is not out of your reach. You live in the land of plenty. They lived in a land flowing with milk and honey, and yet they were seeking another homeland. I know that this land of comfort can be, can be very difficult to take your eyes off of the comforts around you and to actually seek another homeland. Well, imagine the readers of this, of this letter in the first century. Some of them have already lived this out, and the author wants to remind them of that. So in chapter 10, before he gets to the faith chapter, at the end of chapter 10, he says, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being public, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. So we have these hearers of the, in the first century. They're, they're reading this um, exhortation from the writer. And he's saying, um, seek a different homeland, right? And then we see that they have already been doing this. These, these people, when they had first became, became Christians, it says, in the former days, when you were at, right after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. These Hebrews, right after they became Christians, were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Publicly mocked, let's say, afflicted, beaten, and sometimes they were just partners with those who were treated. So they were standing next to other people who were treated like this. And then he goes on to say, you had compassion on those in prison. He's explaining how this happened. For you had compassion on those in prison. So apparently they were visiting other Christians in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Imagine this. They become new Christians they start being exposed to reproach and affliction, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and it came from them going to prison to visit people who were put in prison, presumably for their faith. And maybe while they're at prison, people are plundering their property. And it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They were seeking something else. They were not concerned with everything that was around, but they were looking to this abiding possession. It struck me in some conversations recently um, that there are different professions, a lot of different professions, um, that this would apply to. I was thinking of doctors 
who have state licensing boards that are moving with cultural tides in regard to abortion, in regard to gender. And what would it mean for doctors to take on this identity of I'm a sojourner, this is a temporary time in light of eternity, I am looking, I am seeking this other homeland and I am being told X to do and I could lose everything if I don't. What would it mean for us to be seeking a homeland? For teachers too, man, thinking about teachers who are told you can teach this, you cannot teach this, you can say that, you cannot say this. Um, Looking at the example we have here of these first century Christians accepting, joyfully accepting the plundering of their property because they had their eyes on a better and abiding possession. What does that mean for us? Give us wisdom, God. Um, Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. These first century Christians, they knew at one time that they had a better possession, an abiding one in heaven. But they are reminded here in our text again, and it is reminding us again, seek your heavenly homeland. If your eyes are set on the promised homeland in heaven, you will joyfully accept the plundering of your property. You will joyfully bear reproach and affliction for the sake of Christ because you'll be able to see that promise from afar and have confidence that it will be yours And it will be much, much better. Let's move to verse 16. The delight of a pilgrim or the the object of a pilgrim's delight. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. God has prepared for these saints of old a city. He's prepared a city for you and for me. And he's not ashamed to be called our God. That is, that is to say, he is a God that is faithful to keep his promises. But what is this city? Thankfully, um, we have it right here in the context. We should look just a few verses earlier in verse 10. The writer says that Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and architect was God. They're to be looking forward to this city whose designer and architect was God. Well, what else can we find out about this city in, uh, in Hebrews? In the next chapter, chapter 12, we find the author explaining that in this new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated, we don't come to a scary mountain like the Israelites did when they left Egypt, right? They leave Egypt, and to inaugurate this new covenant, Moses is gonna go up the mountain, and he's gonna get the law, and they're gonna be his people, And God is going to be their God. But before he goes up, God says, it's only going to be you that comes up, all right, Moses? And nobody else can touch this mountain. And the people were terrified of the mountain. Well, it's not like, that's not like the city or the mountain that we're talking about now, the city to come. No, we will come to the city of the living God, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem that will have innumerable angels in festal gathering 
is what it says in chapter 12, and to Jesus, the mediator of this new, better covenant. In Revelation 21, on that same theme, we learn that this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, will come down and a loud voice from the throne will say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Let that soak in. That is the city that we are to be looking toward. That is the city that is prepared for us. That is where we are headed. So, what difference does this make? I think it makes all the difference in the world. How you view yourself, your identity, how you act out of how you view yourself, and what you focus on makes all the difference in the world even though you are living in what many call the land of flowing with milk and honey. On top of that, the land of enchantment, which is just, there are very difficult things here, I know. There are very difficult things in Africa. How will you respond to the hard things of life? Maybe it's not going to be public humiliation, plundering of your property, as it was for the Hebrews. But what about sickness? What about death? Those seem to be no respecter of persons. And they tend to show in the long run where our identity is and show us where we have set our eyes. What if your child is diagnosed with cystic fibrosis? What will your enduring response be? Not your immediate response, but how you respond day 10, week 35, year four. Will it be bitterness? If your identity is only focused on here, now, my family, my health, be forewarned. If your identity is, on the other hand, sojourner, this life is but a shadow. My eternal reality is a city with the, the living God dwelling with him. Your response may be like this. I want to talk about cystic fibrosis with my five-year-old son. I want him to own it. I want him to know and cherish that God has chosen him among all his friends and relatives to bear this. He may only live to be 35 years old, but may he show the world around that he has a better and abiding possession ahead of him. This as expressed by some friends of mine recently, who by God's infinite grace are examples to us of having a pilgrim identity. What about where I live in North Africa? What is the relevance? The relevance is enormous. The majority of believers I know in my city and the new con uh, the, the majority of believers I know in my city, which is two out of three, and the new converts, or non-new converts, as it sometimes turns out, are faced with the pressures of apostasy. Imagine you're a woman living in North Africa. You've believed on Christ two years ago. Months ago, you were wondering if it was worth it to continue in your faith. 
you're divorced, basically considered used goods by the Muslim men around you. Your brother, whom you live with, and his fanatically religious wife suspect that you uh, not only are no no longer adhering to Islam, but you're adhering to another faith, Christianity. They berate you every day for not going to the mosque, for not covering your hair in a properly Islamic way, and for associating with infidel Christians. Each Each day, your brother takes your phone and checks it to make sure you're not doing something that might make him look bad. Finally, he finds some Christian materials that you have put on your phone. He flips out, demands that you put on fully Islamic dress, swear allegiance to Islam, and pray in an Islamic fashion in front of him immediately or he's going to kill you. You think he probably won't kill you, but he will beat you and kick you and throw you out and all your belongings to the curb. So you do it. You swear allegiance in front of him, get dressed in Muslim garb and pray. Now, months later, you're interacting with my wife who wants to counsel you from the scriptures. Our passage tonight counsels this girl. In addition to hearing the warning passages and the glorious passages of the supremacy of Christ, she needs to hear that this world is not her home. Her stay is only temporary. If she keeps her mind on everything right here, Islam, what she's left, can she go back? If she focuses on a heavenly better country to come, she will prove that she is a child of God. Nothing can snatch her out of his hand. And she can join the ranks of the saints in this chapter, living and dying by faith. Friends, we come to the table tonight to remember something even greater than the fact that we are pilgrims. We come to remember the one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. May our hearts be humbled by the fact that some forsake Christ after giving mere lip service to him. And may our hearts overflow with joy that God is not ashamed to be called our God. Let's pray. Father, lift our eyes. Lift our eyes from all this temporary stuff around us. Yes, we want to be present. We want to be here with the people around us and we want to love and minister right in front of us. But we always want our eyes to be focused on this city that is to come. Knowing that it is only through that better mediator, Christ, We can only come here through Christ. We can only go to that city through Christ. Lord, thank you for reconciling us through Christ. Lift our eyes. Help us to have this identity of pilgrim. Grow us in that and may it affect us um, so that the people around would know that you are Christ, uh, that you are God as we joyfully accept the plundering of our property in whatever way that may be, but because we know that through Jesus we have this better and abiding possession, do that here. 
Grow us in that identity. Grow our friends in North Africa in that identity. Glory and praise to you. Amen.